Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. Focusing on the scriptures this morning, we're going to turn to 2nd 2 Corinthians. And uh, it is the book that we are focusing on, the letter uh, that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And uh, Isaac last week considered the last couple of verses from chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to this morning consider chapter 5, 1 to, 11, 1 to 10. But I do want to read from verse 16 of chapter 4. So Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, so Paul writes, so, do, so we do not lose heart. Our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Just so far, the reading of the word. Uh, Lord, we pray, as Alex has already done, committing this time of proclamation to you. And Lord, praying indeed that your word would find access into our hearts Lord, by your spirit, enabling me as the preacher, but each of us as we come in submission to your word. And Lord, would you produce fruit among us, we pray, to the glory of your name. Amen. Well, some years ago, uh, Central Baptist Church had a manse. In other words, a church house. But along the way, it was decided to sell that house, and so we needed to move as a family. And in that process of moving, I was on one occasion packing up a pile of gum poles. These gum poles were next to the garage, loading them onto a bucky, only to discover a lost wooden instrument. At first, I didn't recognize this decaying piece of wood, but soon identified it as what I would call a specially designated wooden spoon. I think parents will know what that was used for. A specially designated wooden spoon that had some months before mysteriously disappeared. (laughs) 
I'd found what used to be a paddle, that's what we call it, or a rod, for helping, and I had two of them, two young boys, in the ways of right and wrong, doing so via the seat of understanding. Okay, we all know what the seat of understanding is. Sometimes it needs to be warmed up so that it can encourage uh, little boys especially. Well, the bottom line, this uh, wooden spoon had now become rotten and useless and, in fact, uh, discarded. It could easily, in fact, I did discard it. And the point is that months of being out subjected to the elements, termites eating away at the wood, the spoon was crumbling wasting away. It could no longer fulfill its intended purpose. I threw it in the bin. The spoon had come to the end of its useful life. So like that spoon, and the point I'm wanting to make in this introduction is like that spoon, the hard truth that cannot be denied. And my first point this morning, death is a certainty we must all face. So I'm going to start, that's where our passage starts in chapter 5 and verse 1. It's a reality that we must from time to time consider, we need to talk about it. And this morning we're going to do that. And the words of the hymn writer, well-known hymn writer Isaac Watts, I believe these words are really descriptive of the brevity of life, saying that time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. Generation after generation after generation. He continues, he says, they fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Not just Isaac Watts, but the scriptures, and I go to the book of Job, chapter 14, verse 1, he says, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and he withers away. Like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. So look away from him and let him alone till he has put in his time like a hired hand. Just consider this morning the fact that it is true that you have a wonderful, you have a marvelous body. The design the intricacies of that design, an amazing body, so much so that literally hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the psalmist expressed praise to God for the miracle of the human body, of his particular body. Uh, He speaks in Psalm 139 to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You have a wonderful body, but it's perishing. It's deteriorating. Verse 16 of chapter 4, outwardly we are wasting away, every one of us, younger people, older people. From the very day you were conceived, you started moving closer and closer toward a point of collapse. The magnificent body with all its amazing complexity deteriorates. Eventually, sooner or later, it dies. Paul understood that accepted the inevitable reality of death. 
In the very first verse, he says, For we know that if the tent, this is the body, if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he understands, he, he recognizes, he faces the reality that the very nature of his tent is that while it may be in good condition when we first get them, if any of you do camping, you would know this, tents don't last forever. Eventually the canvas perishes. Eventually the canvas will tear. Eventually the tent will leak. And eventually the tent will collapse. And so this morning, a subject we don't often speak about, that of death. We do need to understand that like a tent, our bodies have limited durability. Like a tent, our bodies can be likened to a temporary dwelling. Like a tent, our bodies are subject to wear and tear in and through, in fact, the very storms from which the body protects us. And so it's right that we speak of a life span. You have a life span. I have a life span. Our bodies, our lives in our bodies have a beginning and they have an end. If our Lord Jesus does not return during the course of your life or my life, like a fragile tent, your body has a destiny to be destroyed. It will be destroyed in one of a number of ways. I've just listed three up. Natural decay. Some people live to be 90 and 100 and perhaps 102 or 103, but not much beyond that. Some people suffer the reality of physical accident. And they pass away, sometimes at a young age. And then, of course, the reality of other matters of danger, natural disasters, or even war. But here's the good news. In this passage, we see that death is not the end. We need to imprint that upon our minds. We need to see, in spite of what looks like an inevitable catastrophe, that this life comes to an end as we know it. My second point this morning, life beyond death is a certainty to anticipate. I want you to think this morning a little bit about life here on earth and the possibility that there is no life beyond this life. Now, I'm not saying that that's the case, but I want you to think of that possibility, that theory, that that is what many people would say today. And I want you to do so. Imagine you were like that spoon just wasting away, getting older and older, getting worn out and disfigured, eventually discarded and forgotten. What is the meaning of that kind of life? It is meaningless. It has no purpose. It has no prospect. It has no future. That kind of life, better, better, better described as mere existence, alive today, maybe alive tomorrow, but certainly in 100 years, gone and forgotten forever. Extremely disconcerting, extremely discouraging. And while you're living through those days with that kind of mindset, there is this added anxiety that death itself is hanging over you as a final catastrophe. Always knowing that this death, 
The final misery to end all miseries is lurking around in the shadows. Can you see the meaninglessness of, 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 of that which people say that this life is all it is and there's nothing beyond? But thanks to God, there is something more for the human being. There is something special for the believer and that you are not like that spoon. There are unseen eternal prospects awaiting every believer who passes from this life. Notice again as we turn to the opening verse, telling us that there is, in fact, another era of existence, another season. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. See the analogy here. See the metaphor. We're talking about a dwelling place. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Folk, there is in death a passing. And I think I like that word, passing. There is a passing from one realm of existence, a temporary realm of existence, to a permanent home of existence. So I want to ask the question, what happens at the point of death? There is an immediate movement, the Bible tells us, for the believer into the presence of Christ. In verse 8 of our passage, a little later on, Paul describes the anticipation of being at home with the Lord. At home with the Lord. Isn't it something that Jesus spoke of when he comforted his disciples in John chapter 14 before his own imminent death and they were concerned and they were troubled? He said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now he's not speaking here about physically built rooms. He's speaking about dwellings, a place for disciples, a place for believers. If it were not so, Jesus said, I would have told, I would I've told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And then verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'm prompted just to share a verse from John chapter 17. Wonderful scripture that Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer to his father. He gets to verse 24 and he says, Father, I pray that those you have given me may be with me and see my glory. Passing, passing from that which is transient and temporary to that which is permanent and not just a place that we call heaven, but a place into the very presence of God. Now here's an encouragement. I found this encouraging and, and perhaps because it's close to my own heart uh, regarding this transition process. What happens at the point of death from what Jesus said in, in the story that he tells in Luke chapter 16 verse 20? Remember the story of the poor man 
uh, at least the rich man and the poor man and Lazarus. In verse 20, he says, a poor man named Lazarus. And then he describes something of this poor man in verse 22. This poor man died. He reached the end point, the terminus point, the, the, the conclusion of his life. And he was carried by angels to Abram's side. Doesn't that change the picture of death? Your loved one, my loved one, passing from this life, emotionally traumatic, heart aching, but having in our minds this picture of the very angels of God coming, passing from this life into the presence of God. And for those of you who doubt that, the assurance for the believer, the words spoken by Jesus to the repentant thief beside him on the cross, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's no wonder that Paul says to die is gain. To enter paradise, to enter the presence of God with more to come. Remember, I'm answering the question, what happens when you die? Well, there's a passing into the presence of God. There's been this unnatural severing because of sin of the body and the soul. Body deteriorates, but the person, the soul moves into the presence of God with more to come. And Paul has already elaborated on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a description there of the resurrected body. You want to know what your body's going to be like in heaven as a believer? Look at the detail of 1 Corinthians 15. And I'll go a little bit beyond to the second coming of Jesus where he speaks of this transition. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. In other words, bodies in the grave. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at that last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall... And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We will be given a new body that will not deteriorate. You will be given a body that will be different. You will be given a body where you will be recognized as who you are. Just as our Lord Jesus' glorified body was in continuity with his incarnate body, so also will be ours. The body that was knitted together in your mother's womb, the present body, it will be resurrected. Your present body will transformed into a body that will exist into eternal continuity. Folk, this is a wonderful prospect. I want to quote theologian, systematic theologian Wayne Grudem. I think he makes a good point. He says, this continuity affirms the goodness of God's physical creation. This is what he says. We will live in bodies that have all the excellent qualities God created us to have. And thereby we will forever be living proof of the wisdom of God in making a material creation that from the very beginning was very good. We will live as resurrected believers in those new bodies and they will be suitable for inhabiting 
what Peter describes as the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Message this morning, there is more beyond this life. There is so much more beyond death. Life beyond death is a certainty to anticipate and not a mystery to be feared. Which leads me, leads me to my third point, and I want to address the issue of living in the present with that certainty of hope. How do we go forward from here today? How, how do we live out our lives as believers? We, we need to ask the question, what about the present? What about life in the midst of the storm? when things are difficult? What about life in the midst of the sunshine when things are are good and easy? Well, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul describes somewhat of a tension between his life here and the anticipated life in heaven. For me to live is Christ in the present, to die is gain. And then he speaks about a fruitfulness in the present and, and, and a tension and he can't decide which I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. We find the same kind of tension in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, Paul here is torn between the difficult present And the promised future. Have a look at the second verse. For in this tent, this body, this life, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. To get to that place where it will no longer be hard. No more tears, no more death. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, I'll speak to that in a little while. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. We know that. You know that. There are times in this life when the weight of difficulty presses down on us. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now I'm going to say a couple of things about those few verses. And in each time I'm going to preface it with the words, we live in the present with the certainty of hope. Right? So we are here, but we're looking forward to heaven. Even though we have reason to groan. But, here's my point. It's groaning that is not just moaning. Okay, there's a difference. Paul's in a sense giving us permission to groan. But it's a certain kind of groaning. He's painfully aware that so much of what is true in this life with the difficulties that we experience from time to time, burdens us. I thought perhaps we could think of this body like an old car. Some of you have got new cars, but some have got old cars. Old cars have things that continually go wrong. Is that not true? They go wrong. Now, I listed out a couple of things over here. One thing after another. The tires wear out. You've got to renew the tires. The battery goes flat, especially on a very cold winter's morning, and you want to start the car, and it doesn't even click. Exhaust gets holes in it, and it sounds like you've got a V8. 
the brake pads are scraping on the disc. You get dents from the parking lot. You try and look after your car, but sure enough, somebody will slam their door into it. And so one thing after another, windscreen wipers need to be replaced, oil filters need to be changed, and fuel filters, and and, and things go wrong, and cars break down, and, and these days, I guess, with electronics, even more so. Now, what about you? Your body is like an old car. Your blood pressure begins to be too high. 180, is it? Too high. Don't want to be there. Cholesterol begins to block your veins. Many yet taking medication just in case the veins don't block up. Teeth. And hair. Falls out. You're left with little to cope with. Tumors growing. Maybe the amputation of a limb. Growing deafness, eyes failing. And, and the list can go on and on. You are like an old car. Your body's like an old car. Gout and corns and hip replacements and arthritis. There is so much to groan about. But the groaning, and I want to repeat, is not just moaning. I want to call it positive groaning. It is a positive groaning longing for that which is better. Looking forward to that which God has prepared and promised. It's a groaning in anticipation of something better. I found very interesting Romans chapter 8. If you're familiar with that passage, there are actually three examples of groaning. There's the groaning of creation. In Romans 8 verse 19, listen to this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So creation itself, we are told, cranes its neck, waiting for that which God will do in bringing about the new heavens and the new earth. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Then a couple of verses later, verse 23, the groaning of believers. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Something better, groaning, but looking forward to that which is better. And then thirdly, the groaning of the Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit, this is verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Let me take a minute just on the, on, 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 on the, the, the grammar. In the first two instances, the groaning of creation and the groaning of believers, groaning is a verb. When we get to the third groaning of the Spirit, the groaning is a noun, and the verb actually is interceding, praying. The Spirit doing something, praying, helping us. Which, of course, he continues to speak of in the next uh, verse 5. In this present temporary era, we're not left just gritting our teeth without help. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Again, a bit of grammar there or language. Uh, the word there, guarantee, arabon, speaks of... Uh, the engagement ring. The engagement ring is the promise of that which will follow and be better. 
The Spirit given to you and to me in this life as believers, Him living within us, preparing us for heaven, for that which is still to come. The Holy Spirit's presence in the life of a believer, He's at work transforming us in the year and now, and that is evidence, that is the guarantee of that ultimate transformation which will take place in the resurrection of the body. Something that he will complete. Philippians 1 verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Jesus Christ. Now I want to move on to a second uh, aspect of this verse. We live in the present time with the certainty of hope, with an attitude of confidence that the cup is not half empty. Now I'm sure you're aware of that phrase. Many people approach life always grumbling, always complaining, always seeing that the cup is half empty. Well, let me use an illustration. I've seen, or should I say I've seldom, I don't think I've ever seen a young lady engaged to be married who is miserable and mopey. What happens when a girl gets engaged? My daughter got engaged earlier this year. Man, there wasn't a day when she wasn't talking about the wedding. Sometimes I said to her, come on, man, surely you've got this thing together already. But every night, sitting at the kitchen table, looking on the internet, wedding dresses, bridesmaid dresses, menus, uh, venues, and, and wedding, and oh, he's such a wonderful man, and all the rest of it. <laughs> Isn't that so? Because she's living in an era where she has made a promise that is still to take place which is better. That's the point. And so she lives in that era. She doesn't interpret everything negatively. She doesn't groan moaning with seeing the cup, as it were, half empty. And so Paul says over here, he says, those of us who are wait, uh, we who are waiting as believers, no need for us to be miserable and mopey because, verse 6, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. There's something better coming. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So did you get my point? There's the anticipation of that which is better that should affect us in the present in the way that we interpret life as it unfolds. One more comment I want to make about those verses. We live in the present with the certainty of hope resolved to make the right lifestyle choices. We are faced, each one of us, every day with options. Some of the choices are neutral that you have to make. It doesn't matter whether you choose this or that, tea or coffee. I don't think it matters. Some choices matter, especially when it comes to that which is righteous and that which is honoring and pleasing to the Lord. There are those things that are in the category of right and wrong, obedience and disobedience. Now, I find it very interesting over here that the governing factor affecting the way we make choices hinges on which relationship you prioritize. You see, Paul's longing here, which is evident in this passage, he speaks of being at home, 
with the Lord. Now, you've been away from home. I'm sure many of you have. There's no place like home when you've been gone for two weeks or two months or three months. We long to be at home because those are the people we love. Those are the people we know accept us. Our family uh, are delighted to see us and we're delighted to be with them. And, and so Paul is in his mind here is revealing to us, he's implying to us that this is the priority relationship. He saw himself as one who loved God with heart and soul and mind and strength. And so therefore in verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body at home with the Lord. So, because that relationship, because that priority is in place, we make it our aim to please Him. And folks, there's a challenge there for us believers because it's easy to see in others the bad, mis- uh, the, the bad decisions they make. It's hard to see the decisions that we make that might be dishonoring to the Lord. And there is a sobering verse that will form something of the transition for the next message. Not one of us will escape giving an account to God for the way we have lived and the way we choose. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So let me conclude. I believe this message this morning does challenge us to think about whether our present life in the body is affected at all by our anticipation of the future life with God. Does that enter your thinking and mind? It should enter our thinking. I found this article which is scary. Are you thinking or asking as this Easter essay some years ago in Time magazine question, does heaven exist? It used to be that the year after was virtually palpable, this article writes. What do we mean by that? That you could almost feel, you could touch or or, or readily perceive the reality of heaven amongst uh, communities of people. But religion now seems almost allergic to imagining it. Is paradise lost in our thinking, in our belief? Well, the answer for many people today is actually yes. Believe that heaven is a myth. They believe it belongs to thinking of a bygone era where people were badgered with religion and manipulated into subservience. Well, the editor of Time magazine reported that for most people, and I think he's right, the current generic heaven still delivers when most people need it most. The death of a loved one. Why bother with it at any other time? And I'm telling you now as a pastor, that's true. Even those who deny the existence of God, when it comes to the death of a loved one, There's a reverting, there's a defaulting to some kind of airy-fairy hope that there is life after death and that there is a heaven to be gained. But for the rest of the time, they couldn't be bothered. Another author by the name of David Wells, he points out that 
intellectual skepticism, the age that we're living in, I want to add, the attractive materialism of our day has had an effect on people at a personal level. It is difficult, now listen to this, it is difficult for some people to conceive of anything that is really much better than this life. What about you? Life is great. You have a house, one, two cars, a swimming pool, Netflix, Prime Media, Disney Plus, DSTV, holidays at the beach, overseas. Much of what we're exposed to and what we experience, who needs heaven? We have seemingly lost sight of the magnificent prospect of the presence of God, the reality of heaven, and and as a result have little concern for pleasing the Lord. Instead, it seems that the puny pleasures of this world occupy and distract many believers. And so, folk, my, my message, the message from this passage that I certainly am challenged with this morning Do not be pressed into the hopeless mold of the world. The mold of the world is devoid of heaven, devoid of hope, devoid of God. And I would urge you, urge us, have the boldness of Paul, the certainty concerning life after death, the certainty of the resurrection of the body, the certainty of the believer being carried by the angels into the very presence of God. To have the courage in this world longing for the life of God from heaven. And in the meanwhile, determined, make it your goal to please him. Help us, Lord, we pray. Our minds are easily bombarded and accepting of philosophies and inputs from all sorts of quarters and directions today. And Lord, we confess we live in an age where you are largely excluded, except in case of emergency. Help us as a people to walk daily with you. May we, Lord, recognize the reality of the wonderful provision that you have made, giving us access into your presence through the work of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And help us to grow in our understanding and appreciation of all that you have prepared for us, all that awaits us in the very presence of you, the almighty, majestic, and glorious God, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.